Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the word of God. Amen. It is the word of God. Um, I want to give you two numbers today, number 22 and 90. And let me explain those numbers. 22 is the number of deaths that is a current count as of yesterday morning in the Hotel Champlain Towers South Condominium that collapsed days ago in Miami, 22 dead. That number is likely to increase uh, by uh, 126 more deaths when the decision is made by Florida and the leaders there to declare the efforts a recovery rather than a rescue effort as 126 bodies will be preserved in the tomb of concrete that is there. Our prayers are needed. 90 is for the more than 90 deaths, close to 100 that have been attributed to the heat, the heat wave in Washington and Oregon that is happening right now. And since, since uh, Wednesday through uh, this past Wednesday through Friday even of this past week, people passing out on the sidewalk found dead. Uh, people found in a lazy boy chair in their home that does not normally need air conditioner units this time of year to survive. Um, a simple heat wave has shown deadly force and the force that nature can have and can produce on us. So nature and chance, dominant issues at hand in these two tragedies, but they ultimately take a back seat to the reality of death. Now, as we have prayed for these situations, even this morning, and we'll continue to pray for the loved ones who have survived these, who have died, we will continue to pray. But what do we do? And what do we learn from such harsh realities of death like this? If the shock wears off and we're left with living under such tragedies as just a normal thing, just in these last weeks have these two accounts happened, and you can think of many more, then what's the point of it all? Does our faith in God collapse under the weight of those condo levels that crashed down on our nation's conscience? Do we faint as followers of Christ in the heat wave of nature's fury in America's Northwest? You know, it shouldn't. Our faith should not buckle under such things. But so often our weakness as believing peoples is to downplay the fragility of life, to ignore the pressing demands that death presents to us as a people living before God, a people called to live before God. We need wisdom in these matters. We need wisdom. And that is where we introduce this morning the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, as his message you just heard introduced with our short scripture reading today. He says, all is vanity. What does it gain, man? What is man's gain under the sun? All is vanity under the sun. These two ideas frame the main theme and the main point of the entire book that you now hold in your lap. Today, I will do something a bit different. Um, I will give us an introduction to this wisdom book 
that we're reading together, that we're studying together, and then conclude with three important observations concerning wisdom that is both above and below the sun. I want you to bear with me this morning in in an explanation of these two important phrases we just identified in verses two and three. I promise it will be helpful as we introduce this new book. And me and Blake are prayerful that this book book will shape our church in profound ways that only God's word can do. I, I want you to let today excite you about what is to come next, even as we talk about the glooming theme of Ecclesiastes. See, there's probably no other biblical book that's so dominated by one leading theme as is the book of Ecclesiastes. You see it there in verses 1-2. If you were to flip over to chapter 12 at the end in verse 8, you would also see that the preacher concludes his message by saying, uh, the, uh, it's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. The NIV would translate it meaningless. The vanity would be the King James and the NRSV and the NASV and the New King James and the ASV. What are they trying to do in this word? The word translated meaningless. This first idea, all is vanity, all is meaningless. Well, the word is very important. It's, it's this Hebrew word. It literally can mean breath. It's, it's hebel or hevel. My Hebrew is not great and most people don't even know how to pronounce it anyway, so... But the key word is really, really important. In other, uh, it occurs 38 times in this book, Ecclesiastes, Hevel. And um, roughly half of its appearances in the Old Testament are here in what we will study together. And in Ecclesiastes, Hebel primarily uh, seems to denote items, approximately two dozen that we're going to see. And these items are as fleeting as breath, like vapor, Okay. So in 6, in chapter 7, chapter 9, 11, um, it, you know, there, there are these fleeting things in life, actual things, topics we'll get into. There are also senseless things, these hevel, these vanities, like in chapter 4 and 8 and 5 and 10 and 7. They're like breath. Um, the, the author will say they're, they're like, they have no substance, no lasting value, as he'll say in chapter 1 or chapter two, verse one, and then in 11. Imagine this, okay? This is what you need to imagine as we do this. Imagine the preacher, the person we're listening to, the one that we're getting this message from in the weeks to come. It's as if he lights up a pipe, okay, near a fire. And he asks you, he says, hey, come sit and listen to me. And as you make your way to your seat, he draws a cheek full of tobacco smoke. And upon you sitting down, he exhales in your face all this smoke. And he says, grab it. Grab a hold of the smoke before it's gone, and you try. But what does it do? It passes through your hands, right? Hebel, like smoke. It's like chasing after the wind. Imagine if you stood outside and enjoyed the sweet weather we've gotten this weekend, and you felt the breeze, and in feeling the breeze, you thought, okay, I'm going to go get it, capture it, grab it, put it in a bottle. I'm going to keep the wind. You can't. It's like chasing wind. It's vanity. And so at first glance, the the declaration that all in life is vanity seems negative. But the the other phrase that is right there following, look in verse 1-3, this phrase, under the sun, it is so unique. Uh, It is only in Ecclesiastes in the Bible, and it's there 29 times as we study this book. 29 times the phrase, under the sun, shows up. And it shows up for a good reason. 
It shows up to clarify the author's perspective about this idea that all is vain, all is vanity. It's our subtitle for this series as we go through it for good reason. Because guys, let's admit it, life is like smoke and vapor often, like breath. And often it's cruel, it's a cold wind. It's an icy chill of a wind that burdens and bothers and then moves on. But life under the sun can be understood in this life um, by looking above the sun. So life under the sun is given to us by the author to get us aware that there is a right place to fix our eyes and our attention. If all is vanity here under the sun, we must learn the wisdom of how to climb above this life. David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, says so helpfully, he says, many interpreters of Ecclesiastes, they suggest the preacher is simply presenting something that is true only if life is lived without God. But he says the preacher, however, wants us to know that under the sun, under the sun is not all that there is. He says, in fact, it's probably better to see that phrase as a temporal marker more than a spatial marker. Now, I love that idea because in scripture, you know, the sun it is a marker of time. So I'll just take you to the beginning. You know, in Genesis 1:14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to do what? To separate the day and uh, from the night. It's this idea of separation. God said, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Well, very helpfully then, understanding in scripture, the sun is this marker of time uh, Gibson concludes that the phrase under the sun, it refers to a now rather than a there, rather than a place. It refers to a moment. You see, here's the idea. There is wisdom in the madness of this life. There is wisdom to be, glad, to be grabbed in the madness. There is hope to be born from the ash and the rubble of the negative preacher's message. You can actually sit next to this guy at the fire and breathe in the smoke of Hebel, right, of Hevel, the heaviness of life, and you can walk away with hope. It is possible. We need wisdom, and we need wisdom to see through the smoke. And that's the type of wisdom that the book of Ecclesiastes unflinchingly demands we gain at every turn. We must gain, if we read this book rightly, we must gain an understanding of how to make sense of this life under the blistering sun. How do we do that? Well, that is the invitation extended to us as we sit with the pipe-smoking pessimists of Ecclesiastes and ponder these deeper thoughts together about our lives. Guys, let's say this, life under the sun is hard, right? I mean, make no mistake about it. It's difficult to live in this life. No one gets through this life without passing through the hardest and the harshest reality that it offers, death. Now, the Puritans called death the great leveler, and for good reason. You know this, death waits for no one, and it does not discriminate at all. All people die. And like life, Ecclesiastes is a hard book as well. Um, it's a hard book, and we should make no mistake about that, but it offers us a great hope in a big God above the sun to help us live out our days before him under the sun. 
Let me say that again. Ecclesiastes offers us a great hope in a big God above the sun to help us live out our days before him under the sun. Guys, we need this book today in a bad way. Uh, Nothing is new under the sun. You've probably heard that. That's from Ecclesiastes also. Uh, Yet we need its pointed realities. We need the message of Ecclesiastes in these hard times. Because me and you, we like to say these hard times we're in, they're novel to us. We like to think they're new. We like to think that the present difficulties of 2021 outweigh anything that's ever happened before. And the author of Ecclesiastes shows up to tell you, you're so (laughs) close-minded. It's not difficult to look over history and see that what we experience as hopeless and hard and difficult in this life has been experienced before. It will be experienced again beyond us. And so there is a very much right now moment that is informed by everything around it that we need, that we need to get a message of. We need this. Well, Ecclesiastes would actually agree with our you know, bad place and actually tell us we're wrong. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse than we think. And you under, your misunderstanding of why life perplexes you, why one morning you wake up and you love God in the word and you can feel him in the scriptures compared to the next two days later when you read that same next passage and it's like your prayers and your, your thoughts about it hit the ceiling and came back in your lap. And where are you, God? It's like when things are awesome and excellent in your life and it's not difficult to understand that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, as our brother prayed, and then other times where tragedy strikes and you're like, where are you, God? Why aren't you listening to me? Ecclesiastes invites us to have openness. And it's difficult. You need to understand it's perplexing. It's a perplexing book. I love what Ian Provone says, though. He says, Ecclesiastes is to be encountered with openness. You got to have an openness to God and you got to have an openness to change. He says, we, all, we must always consider the possibility when we encounter difficult biblical books that the problem does not lie with the book, but with us. You see, it is a book that grapples with reality. And you know what reality is? Complex. It's hard. You may still be asking, is this book really for me? I mean, do I really need the depressing look that the preacher, teacher, coaleth gives me? Now, I just use something you don't know. That's the word for the preacher there. If you look in verses one, and the Hebrew, that, that word that we try to translate, your Bible probably has a note about the preacher, um, Koaleth is, is what he's known as. And the idea is he's a collector. He's a convener. Um, he's a person who's gathered teachings and he teaches a group. Ecclesiastes, you know, you hear ecclesia, right? You hear ecclesial, you hear gathering language about people gathered. Well, this is Israel gathering to hear wisdom from God. And Ecclesiastes is a preacher doing that. And you may ask yourself, do I really need to hear this message in my life? Let me tell you, I dare say yes to everyone you do. Um, Quoting Robert Gordas, Mark Dever uh, says this, whoever has dreamed great dreams in his youth and seen the vision flee, whoever has loved and then lost, lost that love, Whoever's beaten, barehanded at the fortress of injustice and come back bleeding and broken, these people have passed Koaleth's door. They've passed the teacher's door and they have tarried a while beneath the shadow of his roof. It's a good word. We've been there, all of us, in some form or fashion. 
have scars that show that we have struggled to get answers to this life. I want you to know, friend, this book is for your past, it is for your present now, and it is for your future, and it really is for everyone. Here's some quick applications of why I would say that. You see, if you're here today and you're anxious, listen to me, this book is for anxious people. It is for anxious people who are ruined by the horrible uh, uneasiness and questionable aspects of life. The anxious person will find hope in this book. If you're anxious and your anxiousness pushes you to the point of sin, you need to know that it is best, therefore, to give up any attempt to control destiny and to simply live your life before God. Ecclesiastes will demand you do that. It will take Philippians 4 before it ever came. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is what man has right now. And it will release you from the anxieties of your past and your future. This book is for anxious people. This book is for those who realize also that their life is struck with tragedy, or it will be. Derek Kidner comments, that this book speaks to those who understand this idea. The impermanence of life is sad enough, but its wrongs can be unbearable at times, right? I mean, the impermanence of life, how impermanent our lives are, how, how we change, and all that's normal. I mean, even that, that, that's, that's sad enough. But man, the wrongs, you know, like the, the square right between the eyes trials of life, early death, a lost fortune, a lost job, a dead friend, a buried child. I mean, Ecclesiastes stands and says, I can help you be ready for the toppling effect of difficult seasons. What seems unbearable can help the broken life. So those, so it's amazing. It, it's helpful for the broken by life people, and it's also helpful for the people who have broken their lives. <laughs> Or both. Like you're actively accountable to Ecclesiastes by your own sin. And simultaneously, he's dealing with the fact that there are things outside of your control that are going to do a woe in your life. But God's enough. This book is also for hardened pessimists. Honestly, it's probably mostly for them. Uh, but it's written contemporary, uh, it, it's written in a time when, when Israel is thriving, right? Uh, is what we think and you know, you've got all of this uh, promise and, 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 the, and the preacher and the king who has access to everything. And um, I, I found in my studies that prior to them, prior to Israel, there was something written, and I printed some copies of it, and I, they're over there. There's 10 of them. I'd encourage you to take it. But there's this ancient dialogue, this ancient Mesopotamian dialogue that's written about the time of Moses' life. It's a very old document, um, secular document. It's called the Dialogue of Pessimism. You should take it. It's short, and it's funny, and it, it kind of says Ecclesiastes without the emphasis on God, if you will. And I put a little conclusion in there to encourage you as, as our church to really think well about this series as we go into it. So I encourage you, grab one of those today. And, and if you don't grab one, I'll send you a digital copy of it. I'd be glad to do that. But in this story you'll read, um, it hearkens to this idea that the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about for the pessimist, for the person who's pessimistic. And, but what's amazing about Ecclesiastes is it rises above the shoulder shrug mentality of pessimistic people. It goes above that. You cannot dismiss the harsh realities that Coaleth, the preacher, conveys 
in hardened pessimism himself. Again, Gibson helps. He says, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on how life seems to elude our grasp in terms of lasting significance. And that would seem to encourage the pessimist to dismiss this life, right? But the preacher has more to say than just everything being dismissed in meaninglessness. One theologian named Jason Derouche, he's a research professor in a Midwestern seminary. He says, everything in this time-bound, curse-influenced creation bears a level of enigma. You know what an enigma is? It's like a confusion, a conundrum. I can't figure out this puzzle. It's an enigma, right? Level of enigma, meaning that life under the sun is frustratingly perplexing. It's puzzling. It's incomprehensible. Though, it's still with meaning and significance. Here's the idea. If you're a pessimistic person, you're like always negative. Like in your economy, like no one's ever saved. They're always like, I don't know if they're ever saved. That's how Blake is in our elder board. He's, he's always like that. And it's helpful because here I am, the blind optimist who's like, everybody's saved. We love everybody. And Blake's like, oh, let's be careful. Let's talk about, you know. And it's so, that's what teamwork does, right? So you see this in marriage too. I mean, like almost always uh, a married couple will look at each other and they'll be like, okay, you're the pessimist and I'm the optimist, right? Again, I married a pessimist, and so that's my wife, and I myself am optimistic about life, and you may know how these different things show up, and if you know anything about pessimistic people, you know that no one's more pessimistic than them, right? They are, they are the most pessimistic. Well, this book is for them, because this book dares the pessimist to realize that in their shoulder shrug, they would dismiss the most important things about life. Life cannot be shrugged off. You try your best to think of God as some distant, uh, you know, a not involved person and you'll, you'll be mistaken, friend. You'll be mistaken. It renders the pessimist with the understanding that life is not just meaningless. It's complex. Don't dismiss it. But listen, I don't want to be too hard on not my own kind. This book is also for the blind optimist. It really is. Even though the optimist among us, and I'm in this camp, will likely say, as one person said about this book, it starts out low and it gets worse. <laughs> like Ecclesiastes starts out low and then it just, what about my heart? Like I need some happy thoughts, right? That's how you'll feel if you're optimistic. And there's great hope, however, for the optimist to see in the dark language. Because in darkness, light shines the brightest, doesn't it? Like the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And Ecclesiastes is true in this way. It's helpful wisdom to weary optimists at the right time. Uh, take, for example, just a couple of clippings. In Ecclesiastes 3, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Or in verse 11, before that, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Even the optimists will see that they themselves need this message because the default to always view life as being great and full of, half full of water is to forget that at times cisterns run dry. Plagues do come. There is seasons where water is scarce and you do not get to drink. You must endure and persevere. And so in these long perseverance, listen to me, optimistic people who are gonna get discouraged in the months to come, 
hold fast. The author of Ecclesiastes loves you, and he wants to just show you that there is hope in God. There is hope in God. And it's sprinkled throughout the book. Brothers and sisters, we could go on and on about the value of this book um, and how valuable it is for every type of person who, imbi- who accepts the invitation to sit near the fireplace with Koaleth and talk through his obnoxious smoke, uh, knowing that there's great benefit. This book really is for everyone. And returning to our introduction point, I want you to understand death waits for none of us. Death waits for none of us. The message of Ecclesiastes, it actually is a message for those who are buried in the concrete of the Miami Phil. It really is for the 90 who died and perished under the heat wave this summer, but it's too late for them to read it. And you need to let that reality sink into your heart because it's not too late for the living. And this is the message Koalath demands we understand. Wisdom is needed, and it's not our own wisdom. It's his. It has to come from outside of us, and so that's where we'll conclude today with um, these these three points. Um, We need to look at under the sun. I mean, that's generally what we're doing. And you just had a long introduction about what this book is, but I do want to give you some things today that I think are communicated to us clearly on a 30,000-foot level about the sun. You see, God's wisdom does exist above the sun. And secondly, man's folly is under the sun. But we also will see before we leave today in our conclusion, God's wisdom is under the sun as well. Let's talk about God's wisdom above the sun. God's wisdom comes from above the sun to us loudly, and it comes to us distinctly through some themes in this book. Um, The first one I think about God's wisdom above the sun is this idea that the secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to God. And then secondly, about God's wisdom above the sun is control is God's, not yours. And that's a good thing. So in the secret things belong to God, our first point, Ecclesiastes, you need to know, it's a genre of scripture called wisdom literature. And uh, Mark Dever notes the wisdom books, they form what is called the, the heart of the Old Testament. So, so think about it like this. Rather than being about the nation of Israel, these books are about individuals, Okay, it's, a, it's expressing the highs and the lows of an individual's lives. And they apply God's law, not so much to the corporate people of God as the prophets would, but instead to individuals and the great issues that we face in our lives. So true wisdom about these things only comes from God. There's a hymn we'll sing in this series called Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. It says, immortal, invisible, God only wise in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. That's who God is, shrouded in mystery. So the people of Israel received from books like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, and, this, and some select Psalms. They get this ability to praise God rightly through wisdom. And that's the tradition of revelation here You know, we serve a God that simultaneously has two statements concerning him that are true and are not contradictory. You should write these down. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, it says this about God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of his law. That's a wonderful verse talking about God's wisdom, secret things belonging to him, but what he's revealed to us to know. 
Or Proverbs 25, 2, it says, it is the glory of God to conceal things. But the glory of kings is to search things out. And so the wisdom literature, brother, sister, of, of the people of God, it's presented in this genre that draws our attention above the sun. It draws our attention to heaven. And the author of Ecclesiastes, he's able to walk so dangerously close to blasphemous language because he understands the dual responsibility of those two verses I just gave you. He knows that God is above the heavens doing as he pleases. And he knows that he is on the earth to receive what God reveals. Because he knows his place, he can ask the hard questions. He can walk the line. He says it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with in Ecclesiastes 1. See, the hard work we've been given by God is to know our place. We don't like that message. But that is the message of Ecclesiastes. The preacher here knows his place under the sun. He knows it in relation to God immortal, that God invisible and God only wise. His reflection inwardly is man mortal, man visible, man not wise. And he's ready to receive. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that? Do you know that it is of no benefit for you in your own strength to strive after God's wisdom? And instead, you must receive it. It is something given. It is a gift. Wisdom must be received. He understands that. Secondly, he truly understands in this book that God is in control. God's control of your life is good. You are not in control of your life. Another wisdom point from above the sun. The text itself really gives us this idea clearly. Listen to Ecclesiastes 3. Just listen to it. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Did you hear that? God put an eternity in your heart, but he didn't do it so that you could control the beginning and the end of what you do. That's incredible. Do you see the lack of control that we all have, even in these two simple verses? This is a theme that helps us in this book. There is a Southern colloquialism idea of Jesus, take the wheel, right? Come on, Jesus, take the wheel. I, can't, I cannot do this life, right? I'm throwing my hands up, you know? Let go and let God, right? I mean, that is big. But I got to tell you that uh, the way that that comes to us in our culture really doesn't work for Ecclesiastes. I mean, that idea of Jesus take the wheel is I'm on ice spinning in a car and I cannot do it. And so now's the time for me to give Jesus the wheel. And Ecclesiastes said, hey, fool, you, you forgot that even when you had your hands on the wheel, driving on the good road with no issues, 10 and 2, wide awake, in safety, your life was heaven, smoke. Any moment, someone could have veered off of the other road of the lane and hit you before you ever said, Jesus, take the wheel. You don't have a clue what you're doing. Later, he'll talk about babies in the womb. He'll say, he say, you can't even give the spirit of life to a baby as it's formed. God does that. Ecclesiastes says that. It's saying you, you have no control. So stop trying to control it. You will live life wrongly if you try to control it. If you let God actually do it in all the times, not just the bad, he'll do it. 
He'll control your life. He says it over and over again. Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 is this great montage. And the conclusion of the preacher becomes really clear. You cannot, as a righteous person who fears God and keep his commandments, guarantee success in your life at all. Just like a wicked person who does not acknowledge God but lives his days denying God is not guaranteed to be miserably unsuccessful like we would expect. The author of Ecclesiastes goes so far in understanding that God's in control of your life, not you, that he can deal with chance. He's willing to talk about chance and the lottery idea. That how is it that a person who we know is wicked and should not get blessings in life dies rich, happy, fat with a lot of kids and the person who loves God and lives from their their own poverty for God's goodness and loves other people gets nothing. Gets the strongest butt end of life. How is that okay? Well, the preacher is clear. He knows where he stands. And much like the Proverbs, the better part of God's wisdom for him is to give us a guide to live, not a guarantee. A guide to live, not a guarantee. This is an important theme that you must grapple with if you're going to get this book rightly. Friend, your life is a, bra- a breath of life. It's, it's life under the sun. It's brief. You have to understand Ecclesiastes says God is in full control of it. He knows the secret things and he knows your business a lot better than you do. So yes, Carrie Underwood's right. Do let Jesus take the will. Let God lead, but let him do it in all of your seasons, right? The wisdom of God really is above the sun. But the clearest and the most content comes to us in this second idea under, under the sun. So now we step below. Man's folly under the sun. Um, there's just two really clear things, okay? It's, it's hevel again. It's vanity, but it's heavy. Heavy hevel and a combination of diving deep into the topic of death. Heavy hevel and death really frame in for the author man's folly. I'll do these quickly. Heavy hevel. Okay, although smoke has no weight... There's a heavy heart connected with this idea of meaningless, all is vain argument that the preacher has for us to understand. And again, we need to see that the word hevel is used for a good reason. Um, You know, meaningless, smoky mirage of success. Uh, To explain this from the 30,000 foot view we need this morning, um, we only need to look in verse one. The, The author says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. You see all that context? Okay, you need to understand this book is full of the way of the king. That's important. Think about kings with me for a second. You know what kings get? They get what they want and they get all of it and they get it big and they always have it. Kings can have whatever they want. Kings uh, can do whatever they want. A king has gained the world, but has he lost his soul? Has the king gained the world or lost his soul? And so whether we agree whether Solomon is the author or not, I do think Solomon wrote this. Some think it was later, uh, but you know, other kings, maybe other sons of David. Solomon's not mentioned. You can have a heyday reading the context, and I'll give you my commentaries, and you can argue with dead people. But regardless of who wrote it in that sense, one thing is very clear. It is a Solomon-like character that writes this book. What I mean is Solomon is the preacher, verse 12 in that same chapter, that has been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This context is important because the king in this time, the dynasty, right, the dynasty that breaks out of, of God's goodness after Saul to David and then Solomon and, and all the wisdom of Solomon, it meant he could have whatever he wanted. 
And a huge part of this book is going to say, here's the folly of the king. The king thinks he can find his success in everything he does. And we'll be easily be able to dismiss some of the pleasures he talks about, like drunkenness and other things. Dismiss the easy ones. Yeah, that's vanity. But he'll go after the good stuff. He'll say, what about working hard to God's glory to build something up? Vanity, he'll say. What about the good things of living righteously before God? Vanity. Now, hold up. That's scandalous, right? How's that true? Well, man's folly under the sun impacts us differently when we understand it's the king who's teaching us this lesson. Let me phrase it like this. Jeff Bezos is 57 years old to date, right? And his net worth right now is $193 billion. Let that sink in for a second. That's a lot of money. Let's say that Jeff, you know, if, if we were to have a serious conversation, or I'm sorry, a serious conversion. So if Jeff Bezos was to have a serious conversion to the Christian faith, and then he sat down some 10 years later, having lived the life he's lived, a big life with a lot of money, and he wrote an autobiography, that thing would fly off the shelf, right? Especially among Christians. If he wrote about these things, if he said, here's how my life has changed because of God it would fly off the shelves. People would be talking about Jeff Bezos all the time. We would be interacting with his truths all the time. Why? Well, because he's been like a king, hasn't he? He's had the whole world at his hands. I mean, that dude's going to space, right? I mean, I, he, he could do whatever he wants. He's not limited at all. Hevel. Ecclesiastes comes in and it starts to say things in chapter two that uh, you know, he'll say, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes, listen to this sentence, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. That's serious. I kept no, my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. What? Nothing to be gained? From all that? That can't be true. If I had the wealth that I, like Jeff Bezos or the King of Solomon, I, I, my problems would be fixed, right? No. You'd be wrong. You'd be naive, the preacher says. You know, we're slow to understand this aspect of God's wisdom and then our folly, but it is true. You really do lose everything if you gain the world. Uh, that's a true statement. Uh, but, and if you forfeit your soul in the midst of it, uh, you lose. Uh, you know the book of Job, right? You guys know the book of Job, Job's story? Another book of wisdom. I love uh, that Job is literally making the opposite point of Ecclesiastes. I mean, Job is all about my whole life's ruined. I lose everything that I have. I learned that even in that, having nothing, I still sin against God <laughs> and I need him and he's enough and full restoration. But I love what Mark Dever said. He says, uh, this is how the teacher teaches us a lesson different than what Job does. Job learned about the vanity of the world by losing everything, but the teacher sees it by having everything. And this is a pointed message for our culture. It's a pointed message for us. Let's admit it. Let's admit the picture that, that we uh, have fallen victim to at times. We build our own kingdoms. We build our own lives. Even in the church, we build our own successes. We build our own comforts. We build into our lives what we think honors God with how we live. We do that. Sometimes we do it wrongly. Sometimes we do it right. But Ecclesiastes is going to show up. And if you've ever heard of the term waterboarding, you ever heard of that? I'm about to explain what it is. He waterboards the reader with this idea of, Pursue all that, good or bad, and do it wrongly and be warned. It's vanity. It's worthless. Now, 
Did you get that picture of waterboarding? If you didn't, here's what waterboarding is. Waterboarding is a torture technique where someone takes a semi-porous cloth, they drape it over the face of a bound victim, who they, they then lean backwards and they pour water on the cloth over their mouth and nose. What it does is it simulates drowning. The person absolutely is convinced they're drowning, but because of the cloth, they're allowed to breathe air. Their survival is just fine. They won't die. Instead, they just are convinced of dying. Here's, here's why I think that's important. You're drowning, but you're never dying. Your mind is just being punished. As graphic as that may be, I think this is a perfect picture for what the preacher is trying to convey to us. To live for pleasure wrongly, to mishandle the good gifts of this life, to think God owes you something, uh, to climb the corporate level of your success, to envy your friend's position in life, to, to disregard God's sovereignty, it's to drown the death of torture and never die. It's to drown in the death of torture and never die. Now, bleak is the way of man. There's only folly under the sun. Wisdom literature is poetic. It, it stirs the heart. It gets you thinking about uh, polemics, which is like arguments. It picks a fight with you. This book wants to pick a fight with your soul. At the same time, it then wants to come in and, and swoon you and give you pithy and quick sounds of, of, of hey, wake up sinner, right? Like, wake up. God's still good. He hasn't forgotten. And then it wants to lull you at times into other things. And uh, that's because under the sun, hevel is heavy. And that's the whole idea. And I hope you're feeling it in the way I'm preaching now. You'll feel it as we go through it. Hevel, hevel, hevel. Life is heavy. The breath is <laughs> being squished out of me, it feels like. What's happening? That's life under the sun. It's also a dive into death. Ecclesiastes portrays man's folly not only as hevel, but also a dive into death. This entire book can really be understood by seeing the demand death has on your life. You must understand that death is imminent. It can't be ignored. The preacher will demand his readership remember this great reality throughout the whole work. When you rightly understand that your life is a vapor, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, like James says in the New Testament, you begin to adopt the wisdom of the preacher. Um, <laughs> where are you at? Hush. Sorry, Siri's interrupting our sermon here. Um, diving into death, David Hebel really helps. He says, he describes in the book of Ecclesiastes that all these ideas of your life, like take for instance, like you want to be successful in your job, it's a balloon. And you blow into it, all your effort, all your conversations with your boss, as hard as you could to present that project, to put that PowerPoint together, to work on that conversation, to meet with that person. And that balloon that was blowing and you were so proud of, the pinprick of death, can blow it up in your face at any moment. And that's a beautiful picture of a horrible reality about your life being a vapor. Death is like a needle that shows you the truth. In the preacher's classroom, death is not at the back of it. He's not in the back looming over it like he is in our culture. Like we are able to ignore death in our culture really in ways that for like the last forever, like with technology, like literally all the time, people have not been able to ignore. But think about it. We love our medicines. We have a surgery for everything. We have, uh, I mean, praise God for these things, right? We have antibiotics. People don't die from infection like they did 100 years ago. I mean, we have amazing things that put death in the back of the classroom. It's like, yeah, we see you back there. We'll deal with you later. And the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, no, 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 open the door, bring him in, and put him right in front of us because you're a fool to not deal with it. The folly of men is to ignore this 
And we love it, man. We love the idea that we have time. I I love the poem that's on the clock of the Chester Cathedral. Listen to this famous poem. It's about time. It says, "When when when as a child I laughed and I wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I grew, as older I grew, time flew. Soon I shall find while traveling on, time gone. Now that, that, on that clock, there's one more line, which spoils the conclusion, but it's time to end the sermon. So the last line says, will Christ have saved my soul by then? Amen. Amen and Amen. Indeed, the conclusion is true. Christ does save the souls of men. But the author of Ecclesiastes is interested less in your poetic confidence about time that bothers you when you've lost it when you're young and and torments you when you're old in the same way. You know, they say like a young man underestimates what he can do in 10 years and he overestimates what he can do in one year. I mean, that's all of us, right? The rat race of time, chasing after it. I can't get it, can't get enough. Poetically, it helps us Uh, The preacher walks in and throws cold waters on all your efforts. He says, hold on a second. His view is you must deal with the fact that it is folly to be a child who longs for the ways of older men, just like it's folly to be an old woman who desires the youth of the teen. It's vanity to do either one. You need to live now. You need to live in this moment. You need to seize the day here because the pinprick of death is a moment away. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. But what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He actually does know that. He knows that spirit of man goes there and animals don't go to heaven. He knows that. But he's at least for the effect saying, just like they were formed out of the dust, so are you. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Heavy, hevel, and a deep dive into death. This is the folly of man's wisdom under the sun. So look, friend, you're, you're, weir- I, you're wearied, I hope. I was wearied in putting this sermon together. Wearied in a good way, but wearied. The message of Ecclesiastes seems daunting. What do we do? Like with all this folly under the sun, what in the world do we do? If death threatens us today when we get in our car and drive 70 miles per hour somewhere in a cage of metal with other people driving cages of metal 70 miles per hour on the other side of the road that may have been sleeping, I mean, uh, like, I mean, any moment, like one jerk of a wheel? I mean, I... We get a phone call today and any one of us find out that diagnosis came back? I mean, what do we do if death is around the corner? And then if it's not death, then even how we're living, heavy, hevel, a breath. I mean, life literally getting squished out of you so often. Well, this morning's overview of our study for months to come has presented this, I hope, to you clearly. God's wisdom is above the sun. And I've told you so far, it's secret to us except what's been revealed. I've told you that it's under uh, his control and not ours. And then under the sun, we know the folly of mankind, the broken cisterns of this world, no water, uh, the, the death we face. How then is this helpful? How does it give us relief? Well, here's our conclusion. God does give wisdom under the sun. 
you must remember this entire book is not the only book of the Bible. Do not forget as we go through this book, this is not the only book of the Bible. I would say if there's ever a time for Christians in our church to read their Bibles outside of Sunday and be in other places than where I'm studying and we're preaching on Sunday morning, it is now. If you come here Sunday to Sunday and this is all you're digesting, you will be depressed. <laughs> You'll be miserable if you don't read the New Testament. Because what's amazing about this book of God's revelation, which we love every word, every jot and tittle of God's word is important. It is for us and our benefit is a messianic book. This is a book about Christ. It is a book that prepares the heart in the greatest way to receive from God the greatest wisdom, wisdom incarnate. This book prepares us to see the only one that can conquer the pinpricking power of death. This book prepares people to understand that wisdom did not just remain in the heavens concealed for us to not know. Wisdom took on flesh. It walked around. It ate with men. It fed the 5,000 of them through its miraculous ability. It made sure to calm the oceans and the storms of trials that would consume faith. It stood in the place of man on a cross bearing the burden of Calvary. Wisdom made carnate happen. And one of the sad consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. Ecclesiastes wants to show us that the first signs of new life is that the individual takes sides with God against himself. That was David Barnhouse who said that. And he's so right, Donald. Donald Barnhouse is so right in saying Ecclesiastes makes us take sides with God who's above the sun. And it simultaneously shows us how unclean we are to do so. It prepares us. You know, the Old Testament is full of riches about Christ. I mean, we go to one verse in Isaiah and it tells us that Christ was beaten for our iniquities, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. The stripes that were upon him are our healing. By his wounds, we are healed. One verse. The author of Ecclesiastes wants to take 12 chapters, four months, that's what we're going to do, to tell you every week, you need something better than this life. You need Jesus. You need Christ. Ecclesiastes is not messianic in the way of Isaiah. Matthew McCauley says, there are no promises of deliverance to come. There's no expectation that someone will one day break into the monotonous cycle of vanity and bring something new. But Ecclesiastes is messianic in its own way. It sets the context in which the resurrection of Jesus makes sense. It prepares us to see why everything is vain if Jesus is not alive. So by contrast, it helps us to see everything matters if Jesus is alive. See, that's the jewel of Ecclesiastes that we're going to get to see. You will drink a good wine different after you read Ecclesiastes. You will sit with a good steak and a meal different. You will bless God's name for a 4th of July that wasn't 125 degrees differently because you understand how to rightly live before God under the sun. It's because the one who who could beat death did it. He rose again and he has given you not only himself, what more could heaven give? but has given you life in him. And so when you apply this, you understand Christ really was the wisdom incarnate. Christ lived before the dark world that Ecclesiastes shows us. Christ is the wisdom of God betrayed by us, for us. Christ is wisdom seemingly killed and silenced. And then powerfully, Christ is wisdom resurrected, showing that God's wisdom really is above the sun. 
but because he was plunged into our darkness, the bridge is, the bridge is made. We don't have to know what is God thinking. We know what he's thought. In his son, he has said all things. And in Christ, every answer is yes and amen. And so that is the gospel. The challenge to see Christ in the darkness of this work requires prayer. My invitation to you is to pray. Pray hard. Pray with us. My invitation to you is to grab a sermon card that we have created for this time. Know where we are preaching the next week. Read that passage. Ask God to give you a soft heart to teach you. Pray for visitors who come. Pray that you, you as we as a visitor shows up and randomly we're talking about this, a dark topic, uh, pray Christ is preached. Pray for me. Pray for Blake. Uh, pray for a guy named Ty, a guest preacher who's going to come and speak to us. Pray for Cole Newton, another guest preacher who will come and preach to us in this series. Uh, pray for these people. Pray, pray that as teachers of the word that you can unite around God and what he has to say. I think prayer is needed in the life of a church that takes on studying this wonderful book. If we do it, here's the promise of God. It's the very last uh, portion of the book. It's in chapter 12. It's what we'll close with before we sing and respond. Um, It says this. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise, they're like a goad and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end. Of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Our hope is is that me and you, we can live rightly under the sun. We cannot do it apart from Christ. So as we pray and then we uh, sing Blessed Assurance, after that, we'll have a time where we confess our sins to God before taking the Lord's Supper, and then, uh, and then we'll do that together. So uh, join me as we pray and our brother comes, and, and then we'll sing together. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the heaviness of life. Seems like a strange thing to thank you for, for we confess, God, it's hard. Life's hard. But we thank you that the wisdom of heaven the secret things that belong to you, God, the the concealment of heaven. It is our joy. Lord, you've made us kings in Christ, and it is our delight to search out those things. So God, equip our church to do that. Lord, help us to do it in a way that Christ is exalted as the chief and the only wise one that's ever walked this earth and the same one who willingly laid down his life. May you give blessed assurance to the followers of Jesus and our church. And even those who do not know Christ, may you, by the gospel preached in this time, may you give that blessed assurance before God to let the soul cry out in confidence that you are ours and we are yours. God, I pray that this type of level of understanding and application would permeate our hour as we come into uh, Ecclesiastes. We thank you for your word, every bit of it. And we thank you that it prepares us, God, and teaches us how to live in light of your goodness. And so, God, hear our song. And hear us as we confess. And hear us as we take the supper. And Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.